It is great to be home. For those of you who don't understand what I mean by that, uh, my name is Rick Eford. I've had the privilege for 30 years to be the lead pastor here at Desert Springs until five years ago, I resigned from this position in order to invest full-time attention in, in shepherding and pastoring pastors and ministry leaders. And so that's what I've been doing the last five years. And, you know, like the next five of the next six weeks, I'm preaching in different churches. I just happen to be here for one of them. But when I go to other places, people say, so where's your home church? Where's your fellowship in now? And I'll say, well, Desert Springs, of course. Because this is home, it always will be. Every, I love being in the other places, but this is, this is just, there's a familiarity. I love seeing some of you guys, at least this part of you. And honestly, uh, it, it is wonderful to be here. Uh, but in the process of being here, I also had the opportunity to serve Christ in a lot of different places. I mean, you all would send me to places like Russia right after the wall came down. I went over with Gary Olander and some others from here to minister to people there and, and other places in Europe, Africa multiple times, traveled there with some of you, South America, Mexico. These are different places that was wonderful to go. But I got to tell you, it always felt good to come home because that wasn't home for me. It was a place where I went, and I was thankful to be there, but the food was different, the customs were different, the currency was different, the language was different. Why don't they speak English the rest of the world? I don't get that. But you, you get the point. I mean, I'm not in my native soil. I'm not on my home at that point, so I'm a little bit off balance in those places. Some of you that have immigrated here from different parts around the world, you get that even more so because this is not just a week or two week or one month type of trip. You're living here. You're having to learn all these types of things. And so it's a little bit putting off when you're a stranger, when you're a foreigner, when you are an exile, a sojourner. These are all words that could be used for someone in a different culture and different world. But you know, there is a culture that is not just geographical, but is philosophical, emotional, sociological, and all different types of ways, even spiritual. And perhaps you feel that same frustration when you see things like this happening. Maybe you're pretty frustrated by now about wearing these. Now, don't get me wrong. I firmly believe this is a precaution. We need to be doing this. It's a tool against the spread of the, the Rona virus, as Caleb puts it. Are you talking about beer or are you talking about the virus? Well, you're pretty purposely cryptic, I know. So anyway, the COVID-19 virus, and, and yet I'm getting really tired of it, frustrated. Need to do it, but it's hard. I bet you're becoming somewhat frustrated, and thankfully these are now over, with the incessant political ads on your phone, on your TV, all these where one candidate tells the other candidate on both ways, they're liars, they're liars, they're liars, they're liars. Does that not frustrate you? Does that not irritate to no end, regardless of what candidate you're for, this contentious political deal? The violence, uh, people who call good evil and evil good, injustice, discrimination, the marginalization of people, abuse in all of its forms. Doesn't that frustrate you? Doesn't that irritate you and even anger you? Of course it does, and it should. Christian counselor and also author, Dr. Larry Crabb, has said these things ought to frustrate us as followers of Christ because, and catch this, we were designed to live in a world that's better than this one. You and I, as followers of Jesus, were designed to live in a world that's better than this one. This isn't our home. 
This is not our homeland. This is this foreign turf for those of us who know the name of Jesus Christ. I really appreciate the cards that have been on the back and, and the emphasis that's here in this series that we've been going through as far as grace and age of outrage, the identity truths, the postures, I think Caleb's called them. I was privileged to be here two weeks ago when I heard Nicholas Mwangi when we did his ordination talk about light shining in the dark. Didn't he do an awesome job on the message? I just love that guy's fire. Man, it, it's like, it may be dark, but he's got some fire in there. <laughs> this is not like let your little light shine. He was going for it. And I love seeing that, Nicholas. I had the privilege of doing a, a leadership training for a bunch of East African pastors by Zoom yesterday that Nicholas had arranged. And it was marvelous to spend a couple of hours with them through technology. But all these types of things, we want to draw your attention to the last one on the list. Do you see this right here? I am a what? foreigner in a strange land. That is so important for us to get a hold on, both as followers of Christ and even as American citizens just having come through an election cycle. Here's the thing I want you to go leave with, one of them. As followers of Christ, you and I, we are foreigners. Foreigners to this world, but we have a citizenship. And it's a citizenship that's in heaven that's reserved for us. And we better keep our eyes on that or we're going to get really car sick along the way. Here's the passage that we've been looking at. And I want to ask you if you've got your Bibles, I'm going to put it on here. It's 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm not going to read all the ones you've been spending the last five or six weeks in. But verses 11 through 12, and listen to what it says. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of your visitation. That's a reading of the word of God. It's not a political campaign. This is a truth. This is a fact that we can bank on. And we need to start with understanding that you and I are not at home in this world ultimately. We are strangers, we are foreigners, we are sojourners, exiles, whatever term you want to use, they're all synonyms. And this is a recurring theme in the scriptures. It's not just Peter that writes this. Paul also wrote this in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, mark that and mark it well. Our citizenship as followers of Christ is in heaven, and from heaven we await a Savior who is Christ the Lord. It is not Donald Trump. It is not Joe Biden. It is no political leader. No one, irrespective of their platform, their party, their affiliation. Ultimately, we're looking for a Savior who is from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. And no pun intended here, who trumps all others. Okay. Not only did Peter say this, Paul say this, but also the author to Hebrews. Now, we don't know for certain who wrote the book of Hebrews, but it was written to Jewish Christians who were scattered throughout the world. The Jews understood being exiles, being foreigners, because they oftentimes had been scattered. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. But they get that. But their faith in Christ is there. And this is in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, what I call the hall of faith 
rather than Hall of Fame. But in God's book, these are the famous ones. In God's book, these are the heroes. In God's book, these are the men and women that really make a difference. And yet it says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. They desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Friends, there's, an ang- there's a longing, there's an anxiousness for something that's better, that's something that's higher, for something that's righter, so to speak, than what we can experience in any earthly kingdom. C.S. Lewis made this statement in Mere Christianity. If I find myself in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. End of the game. I was made for another world. I love the fact that this is what the scriptures speak of, and yet we live, if we're honest, in a very increasingly secular culture, not something that's spiritually oriented, but something that is of this world system. And if we don't acknowledge that, we're going to be constantly in frustration and agony and, and, and writhing in pain. This is different world in which we do live right now for a season is not God's world. There's another one, the prince of the darkness who is the prince of the power of the air, who's really in charge of all that we see, the dysfunction and and the wrong things that are going on, which we long and rage against. According to Pew Research, it's a data type of thing and survey um, organization that's trying to evaluate different places of what's going on. This has to do with the church. It said that uh, we are living in an increasingly secular world. Things of God, things of the church are diminishing. And it says this, the nuns, and we're not talking about Roman Catholic orders. It's not N-U-N-S, it's N-O-N-E-S. People who weren't asked, what religious affiliation would you say you have? And they said, none. Among adults, the adult population in the U.S., 23%, according to Pew Research, were nuns. 18% more who were raised in Christian home or members of another faith claimed no religious affiliation as well. Start doing the math and you can see the trajectory. We look at practices about those who claim to be Christian are less likely to pray daily, less likely to attend religious services, less likely to say they believe the Bible as a standard of authority. That's a part of what being in a post-Christian culture uh, or in the type of culture where rationalism and uh, I can't think of the word I'm looking for right now. But anyway, subjectivism is really the, the rule, not objectivism. Erwin Lutzer, in a book that he wrote, Erwin Lutzer was the pastor at Moody Church for 32 years, I think it was. He wrote a book entitled The Church in Babylon. And it's talking about the church. He's not referring Israel to the church here. He's just saying believers who are living in a world system like Daniel many, many years ago when he was exiled into Babylon, he was not on his home turf. And he's saying, how should we live as Christians, the church, 
in Babylon in a foreign system, foreign soil, enemy territory to some degree, if you would. And he says, heeding the call to be light in the darkness. Here's one of the things that he talks about. There's three revolutions that have affected the thinking in our culture and even in the church. One is the sexual revolution, redefining of sexual identity and of relationships and all those types of things. And he goes much more of the impact of that. The technological revolution that we have, especially with social media and other things like this, great tool, poor master. I don't know if you've seen the, the uh, Netflix, Emily and I watched, Emily's my wife, for those of you who don't know. Uh, we watched Social Dilemma on Netflix the other night, and it's really sobering. Uh, you come away and, and you may, I'm not saying I buy everything that they're saying, but these are people coming out of the social networking world who are saying, wait a minute, it has taken on a life of its own and there's such an addictive dimension to this and it's, it's so dangerous. Things that we try to do for good have been turned toward destructiveness and evil and there's some incredibly sobering things there. And I would encourage you to watch it just so that you're aware. The anti-Christian revolution and I do think that that's true. And he cites a lot of things in his book about we're living in a post-Christian society. Much like Europe, a hundred years ago, was a missionary sending uh, machine all around the world. And yet now churches are boarded up. And yes, there's a remnant. Yes, there's a spark of God's work even within Europe. But it's far different than it was a hundred and hundred and fifty years ago. And we're on the same type of trajectory so the anti-Christian movement, we got to steal ourselves. We've got to get, get understanding this is where we live. And he says there's three options that we could really do in this book. He says, one, we could assimilate to the culture. Well, that's not really an option for people who want to follow Christ. That's called hypocrisy. That's called worldliness. That's not going to work. Another one is to isolate from the culture. That's an option. You could join a monastic order and you could separate from the dirty, nasty world. And not, but that goes against what Jesus said, that we were to be salt and light. And, and how can you separate yourself from the world who needs to know Jesus? You can't go out from the world, but you don't want to be a part of it, Jesus teaches. So it's not to, to isolate from the world. And the third is to engage the culture. I would have chosen a different word than engage if I was writing the book, but he didn't call me and ask me that. So engage sounds combative. It sounds military, and that's not what I think he's saying. I think as believers, we can influence the culture in a positive way. He's certainly not talking, and he speaks against trying to engage the culture politically. I'll give you some historic examples. 1979, Jerry Falwell, a pastor in Virginia, founds the moral majority to try to influence the direction of the politics in our nation. That was disbanded in the late 80s, but arguably the effects are still with us today. Now, the very next year, that was 79, in 1980, the people for the American Way were founded by TV producer Norman Lear, directly to counteract what he calls the extreme right of the moral majority. So you got these warring factions within our political realm. Is that really what God wants us to do is fight fire with fire, so to speak? I would argue probably not. And that's perhaps one of the reasons. Listen to these. Ed Stetzer, who is a distinguished chair, Billy Graham distinguished chair at Wheaton College, said this. 
Many have noted the decline in Christian values can be attributed to a reactive, angry, disengaged, and politically motivated Christian culture that has sought to assert itself in order to win a cultural war that was destined to be lost. We have the best news in the world. We often have communicated it as the right news instead of the good news. Many times we have preferred to be right instead of be loving, and we have lost our reputation in the process. David Kahneman and Gabe Lyons wrote a book called Unchristian, What a New Generation Really Thinks About Christianity and Why It Matters. By the way, before I read this, I'd encourage you, if God prompts you, if his spirit directs you, pray for David Kahneman. Uh, his wife just died from a brain battle with brain cancer this week. I'm thankful that a friend of Caleb's and mine, who's the pastor of Central Christian Church in Mesa, um, Cal Jernigan, was her youth pastor, influential in seeing her come to faith in Christ, helping her grow. Uh, David Kenneman is the son of one of my friends, Gary Kenneman, who's been a pastor in the Valley for years. That's how I know about this. But pray for them. They're really trying to get their finger on the pulse of what's going on in the religious landscape. They said in this book, Unchristian, one 35-year-old from California spoke of his aversion to the Christian faith by saying, Christians have become political, judgmental, intolerant, weak, religious, angry, and without balance. Where is the living God, the Holy Spirit, the amazing Jesus, the love, the compassion, the holiness? Now that type of life, how I yearn for that. Do you see how different that is from what we've made it? And we need to accept our complicity in this as individuals and collectively as the church in America. So how do we respond? I'd say our trust, followers of Christ, our trust is ultimately not in human leaders, but in God. No matter who wins an election, our trust is not in human leaders. We're awaiting a savior from where? And his name is Jesus. Our trust is in God not a political leader. And we've got to keep that in mind. Here's what it says in Psalm 20, verse 7. This is a verse, I've been living this verse. You know, it's just constantly re rethinking over and over and over. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Name means everything that's associated with him. Some trust in these other means of the earth, but we choose to trust in God. It is a choice. Where's our trust ultimately? Even on our currency, there's a little phrase that I think we are so hypocritical. It says, in God we trust. We may have even forgotten that's on there. In God we trust. Daniel, who knew what it was to be in exile. Daniel was a part of the Jewish constituency that was taken away into exile in about 605 years before Christ. And they took the best and the brightest and they put them into their trainings and, so that they could be useful in the Babylonian courts. Babylon, the conqueror of Israel, is taking these individuals. And as they excelled, God blessed them, and they were put in very high positions of prominence. But know what David, Daniel never confused. He never compromised himself, even though he worked for the good 
of the city and for the, for the king, Nebuchadnezzar, and then later Cyrus of Persia. But notice what was his moral compass, what kept him straight, what kept him focused on where he should be. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belongs wisdom and might. He, God, changes times and seasons. He, God, removes kings and sets up kings. He, God, gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Daniel was grounded in the truth. He watched Nebuchadnezzar, the great king of Babylon, who one day was taking a walk and looking and surveying the city and saying, look at what great Babylon I have made. And God took him down and immediately afflicted him with what many have called a mental disease called boanthropy, where he was convinced that he was a cow and he leapt off the walls. And for a season of time, he ate grass like the cattle and lived out in the woods until his senses were restored and he recognized that God, and we would say Jesus, is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. God's the one who sets up kings and takes them down. And our trust should be in him ultimately as the king of kings, the Lord of lords. Augustine, the church father, when told of the fall of Rome to the hands of vandals, felt an incredible sadness because he loved the city of Rome. And he acknowledged that basically it was because of God's discipline upon them. And yet this is what he said, whatever men build, men will destroy so let's get on with building the kingdom of God. I want to be clear about something now. When I say let's get on with building the kingdom of God, just like Augustine, it is not the U.S. We are not the kingdom of God. Alistair Begg, a Scottish preacher who resides in Ohio now, was listening to a message by him the other day on some of these passages in Daniel, and he makes this point about Babylon. He says, the U.K., and the U.S. are Babylon, not the kingdom of God. It's a world system. Now, what should we do? We need to understand this is important. You know, I wonder sometimes if our thinking is shaped more by news outlets or maybe I should say media outlets than news like CNN and Fox because they all have their bent. And are they really the facts? Or is it propaganda? But we get listening to a certain vein, and we're convinced this is reality. My question is, if we're being shaped more by those outlets than we are by the Word of God, no wonder we're frustrated. No wonder we're angry. No wonder we're discouraged. No wonder we're despairing. I want to say this to you. If I travel to a different country, I take this with me. What is that? It's my U.S. passport, and there's benefits. It's just paper, but it's what it stands for. There are benefits and privileges of my identity as a U.S. citizen. But I want to tell you something. This is my passport. This is your passport as a kingdom citizen of the heaven of God. This is it. We need to be more immersed in this than we do all the stuff that's around us. Here's the facts, Jack. Listen to it. I want to go back to this passage with you and say this. As followers of Christ, we need to live like Jesus did and we need to love like Jesus did because we are Christ. We are Christians. It is Christ in us that's the hope of glory. 
Notice what it says again here in 1 Peter. And I'm going to look at the latter part of this. First, we looked at urge you as sojourners and exiles. We've been talking about that. Look at what he urges them, implores them, begs them, pleads with them to do. Listen to what he says. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when, not if, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds, and I would add the word, ultimately glorify God on the day of visitation. There is a day of reckoning. There is a day in which Jesus Christ will come, or we will go to be with him, and that is a day of visitation, and he will set all things right. It's already, but it's not yet. So we need to live in light of that truth and live differently than the world. Live like Jesus did. Love like Jesus did. Notice to what? Here is a letter in the second century from an apologist, a defender of the faith, to someone who was a, a philosopher or a counselor to one of the emperors. We don't know which one. The, the philosopher is Diogenetus. And this epistle letter was written to him displaining Christians in that age. Christians are not distinguished from the rest of humanity by their country, their language, or custom. They live in their own countries, but only as non-residents. They participate in everything as citizens and endure everything as foreigners. Every foreign country is their fatherland, and every fatherland is foreign. They live on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They love everyone, and by everyone they are persecuted. They are unknown yet they are condemned. They are put to death, yet they are brought to life. They are poor, yet they make many rich. They are in need of everything, yet they abound in everything. They are dishonored, yet they are glorified in their dishonor. They are slandered, yet they are vindicated. They are cursed, yet they bless. They are insulted, yet they offer respect. Citizens of a different kingdom. Lutzer says this in his book. I think that it's speaking, he actually uses this passage in 1 Peter. And so he says this, Christians are a minority in an increasingly hostile culture. We are exiles, not geographically, but morally and spiritually. Exiles face opposition. They are misunderstood and tempted to lose their distinctiveness. And of those who belong to Christ, we are called to spread the good news and yet avoid being ensnared by the passions of the flesh and the many seductions of the world. We have to be a church that in some ways is repulsive to the world because of our authentic holiness and yet very attractive to the world because of our love and compassion. Interesting balance, isn't it? Live like Jesus. Jesus was killed for what he taught and how he lived. But love like Jesus. What are you saying? In Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet, and they were getting ready to go into exile into Babylon. And he says this, Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for its well, in its welfare you will find your welfare. 
We are citizens of a heavenly kingdom, but the word of God would tell us to be good citizens of this earthly kingdom and to work for the welfare, to be salt and light in the world around us because it not only honors God, like we oftentimes talk about, it also is helpful to people. It's the welfare. We need to work for that. Jeremiah's not the only one that said this. He talked about praying. Paul told Timothy, his young protege in the faith, first of all, of first importance, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Let me put a practical application to that and challenge to you as well as to me. This says to me that I should be praying and you should be praying for a president-elect, Joe Biden. For the cabinet that's going to be put together for different people that are in government, for peaceful transition of power and authority, for there not to be uprisings and, and all sorts of other stuff that go with lawlessness. We need to be praying that God will empower him, guide him, direct him to do that. Whether you prayed for him or whether you voted for him or not, we should be praying for him and for all those around. That's what we're called to do. That's a part of being a kingdom citizen, and that's a part of being a good citizen in this place is to do just that. We oftentimes look for a political answer, and that's exactly what the disciples did right before Jesus was ascended to heaven. In Acts chapter 1, it says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It's not for you to know the time or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. Translated, it's none of your business. But look at what they were asking, Lord. He'd just been with them for three years. And they said, is it now? Is it now? Is it now? I mean, you've been dead and crucified, raised again from the dead. Okay, now are you going to restore the kingdom? We're looking for a political Messiah. Jesus said, that's none of your business. It's not for you to know. Here's what you do need to know. You shall receive power and the Holy Spirit's come upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts or end of the world. We sang a little while ago, we raised our hands as we sang about, Lord, pour out your spirit on us. Now I realize theologically he's already in us if we're followers of Jesus, but the problem is he didn't have all of us. Oftentimes we're not walking in the spirit, we're not availing the power of the spirit of God that's already resident within us. We need to receive him because this is above our pay grade. It's above even the pay grade of Joe Biden, the president-elect, or of the Supreme Court, or anybody else. We need the power of God to accomplish these things, to live like Jesus did, and to love like Jesus did, and to be his witnesses. What does that look like? It looks different for everybody. Every individual has a different sphere of influence. We look sometimes and elevate people like William Wilberforce, who was in British Parliament and who God used to eradicate slavery, legally eradicate slavery in the British Empire, not just in the UK, but all around the world. Many of us couldn't do that. Another person, Chuck Colson, who was special counsel to Richard Nixon, got caught up in the Watergate scandal and for his own doings and probably fallen on the sword for other people. He did a prison stint. But in the process, 
He came to know Jesus Christ in a personal way. He wrote about it in his book, Born Again. If you've never read it, check it out. It's been around a while, but it's an amazing story. But what God did also was this is not just a foxhole conversion because because of what he saw in the prison system, God stirred in his heart to do something about it. So he started something called prison fellowship where prisoners are coming to faith in Jesus or being discipled or growing and are caring for others. It's now in all 50 states in this country and 112 countries around the world. By the way, Chuck Colson also wrote a book. He wrote a lot of great books that give insight very thoughtful, but one is called Kingdoms in Conflict, and he knew about the kingdoms of this world, and he knows about the kingdom of God, and he juxtaposes those two and contrasts them. Read about it. You'll find out more about what it is to be a citizen kingdom. Another person, couple, that you probably never heard of, their names are Art and Nancy, Art and Nancy Allen. And the reason why I bring them up today is because I was just at a memorial service yesterday for Dr. Clinton Smith. Well, Dr. Smith, you probably don't know either, unless he happened to be your physician because he practiced here in town. But he was a brilliant diagnostician and a brilliant doctor, incredibly voracious appetite for for reading. And he, in the mid-60s, goes and, and buys a used Bible at a county fair because he hadn't read the Bible. He wanted to be literate in these different things, so he starts reading it. He and his wife start reading it together. Three or four years pass. They're struggling. Some of the stuff they get, some of it they don't. Mrs. Smith is at a swim meet, a competitive swim meet, where the Smith's four kids are all, and they happen to all be in my youth group years ago at Camelback Bible Church. That's why I was at the service, because of this ongoing love and appreciation for this family. Well, Mrs. Smith is there, and she sees a woman beside her in the stands reading a book, said, what's the Bible? What's the Bible's all about by Henrietta Mears? And she was intrigued by the title, and she went up to her, and she said, you know, excuse me, I see what you're reading, and my husband, I've been reading the Bible, but we frankly need help. So what Art and Nancy did is for the next 14 weeks began to teach them about the Bible. And in the process, that family came to faith in Jesus Christ. Yesterday, as I heard testimony, I heard of successive generations. We were singing today about your children and your children's children and your children's children's You remember that? Those successive generations? And I, thought, I just saw that yesterday where they're giving testimony to the work of Christ in their life. And God's God's using each of those boys and each of their families and even their grandkids and the heritage to their great-grandchildren. And friends, that is being a kingdom citizen. Where did it start? It started with the woman reading a book and who was available to help somebody else. Not as a specialist, but as one beggar, as they say, telling another beggar where to find some bread. Routine faithfulness. That's being my witness. Living like Jesus lived and loving like Jesus loved. If you want to be a kingdom citizen, focus on what you got control over, not the stuff that's beyond your influence. What we can focus on is the sphere of influence that God has given to us and say, am I pointing people to Jesus by how I live and how I love in my family, in the workplace, in my church, in my community, and for some of you, even in politics? Am I doing that? 
and God and leave the results up to God. That's successful witnessing. I love this, and I'll close with this statement. I heard it years ago, and that is a definition that came from a campus crusade thing. What is successful witnessing? It's simply taking the initiative to share the good news of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit and leaving the results up to God. Can we do that? By God's grace, we can. I'm going to ask you to stand and let me pray for you, a benediction, because all of us need help making this happen. And I want to appeal something that Paul wrote many years ago, the apostle in the end of 1 Thessalonians. So if you just bow your heads, close your eyes, and open your minds and hearts to what he has to say and what he wants to give to you. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, and he will surely do it. And all God's kingdom citizens said, amen. God bless you. Thank you for being here this morning.